Take your Bible, if you would, and look with me at Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. It's a fitting text in the flow of the narrative for our time around the Lord's table, our time of communion. I was speaking with a mother a few years back who was praying with a burdened heart for an unsaved child uh, in their young adult years. We were talking about the lessons that one learns when you're praying for someone you love and they haven't come to Christ and maybe they've grown up with the truth and maybe, or maybe they've uh, just heard it or parents got saved late or whatever the case may be. This was a burdened heart of a parent praying for an unsaved child and there are all kinds of things God does in, the, in those kinds of burdens. Two things in particular, though, are... Uh, or what we talked about that, that day, two lessons that are extremely important that God wants to, to embed deep in the heart of anyone who prays for someone to get saved, whether they know them closely or whether they've just met them. It doesn't really matter what the circumstance is. There are two things God is going to do in the heart of the witness, the heart of the one testifying of the gospel. The first thing is that it is humbling to realize that God must move. God must move on their heart. God, when the Great Commission was given, promised that he would indeed, through the gospel message, change hearts. But it is God that indeed has to do it. That's why we pray, Lord, save them. Right? And it's very humbling to know that while we may worry about things like, oh, is their bondage, their sin too great to overcome? Or are their problems too complex? Or am I going to be able to weed through all of the difficulties? What if I don't know the exact Bible verses? And what if my tone's wrong? Or I say something offensive? Or I, I stammer over my words? What if I don't know the right timing? Am I going to be adequate? Even though we course through such questions and doubts in our minds, we still know, Lord, you have to save them. You have to move. So it's very humbling. The second lesson that comes right on the heels of that particularly humbling reality is that in order for you to have come, God had to move. I know sometimes we imagine that when it comes to overcoming the unbelief of the human heart and we look at our Christian life, we we forget. It gets fuzzy in our minds just how it happened. But we must remember that in our unbelief, if left there and without grace, that's it. We will never come. And when you're praying for someone to have the blinders removed... When you're praying that God would overcome the bondage in someone's life and you are an instrument to testify of grace, it is humbling to know that God must move and it leads you to the reality that God did move on your own heart and that is why your eyes were opened. He alone has the power. What Luke does in this gospel in the next several narratives, is bring his disciples face to face with displays of his absolute authority over the universe. His absolute power and authority over all things. 
Luke, in these narratives, discusses the authority of Christ over knowledge, over truth itself. The authority of Christ over evil. The authority of Christ over death and everything that points us to death, such as our affliction and disease and physiological infirmities. Luke gives us narratives that point to the authority of Christ over the rebellion of the human heart. It is God that overcomes the resistance. Later in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he'll speak of Christ's authority over morality itself, right? He's Lord of the Sabbath. If there is a law that says you must honor God and rest, if there is any kind of law that says, here's the standard of holiness, Jesus himself is Lord of that standard. So he's Lord of morality. He has authority over morality itself. He determines morality by his very being. Eventually, Luke will even say that Jesus demonstrated his authority over gospel fruit, the dispensing of gospel fruit. Even in John 17, 2, Jesus said when he prayed in front of his disciples, you've given me authority over every soul of mankind. And in Luke's gospel, you will hear him say that over and over again. He'll say it in chapter 5, I'll make you fishers of men. In Matthew's Gospel, at the very end, he says to the disciples, everything you ask of me in prayer, if you have belief in your heart that is true faith, you're going to receive it. I'm going to give you Gospel fruit. It's going to spread all over the globe. It's kind of a daunting task. How do they believe that they can accomplish such a task? How can they be certain that Jesus is Lord and has the power to grant and secure eternal life? In fact, look at chapter 5 for just a moment, verse 23. Later on, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees who say he's speaking blasphemies because in verse 20, Jesus says to this, this man who was dropped down through the roof and was healed, Jesus, seeing their faith, said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, the scribes said, How does he have the authority to release someone from their condemnation in the presence of a holy God? And so Jesus will demonstrate that, verse 23. Well, which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's, it's easy in one sense to say your sins are forgiven because it's not verifiable. There's no way to know. So that when you come to your deathbed, you can say, no, my sins are forgiven. I will, when I pass from this life to the next, be free in the presence of a holy God. That's why Christians who know the truth and believe the truth have no fear of death. It's a transition. But how do we know? Well, Jesus said, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, obviously, if he's going to demonstrate that he has what? Authority. Notice that's what he says. In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. On earth. There it is. He said to the sick man, rise up and walk. The disciples would need to hear that. They'd need to see that. They'd need to see the absolute power and authority of Jesus to deal with the impossible obstacles. Unbelief in the human heart, corruption, destruction, a world full of it, a globe rampant with it. That's how Jesus framed up the Great Commission, didn't he, in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
So you go and you make disciples and you baptize them and you teach them to observe all that I've commanded and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given unto me. They'd seen it. And so back to Luke's Gospel. In this narrative in chapter 4, beginning in verse 31 and then moving down through verse 37, you see... Two displays of authority spoken about here. One is graphically displayed, and we we will have to move very quickly through it, but I want to mention the first one. Notice, verse 31, he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. The first thing Luke mentions is Jesus' stunning authority over all knowledge, all truth, You say, what do you mean? That is to say that when Jesus taught, it was utterly and recognizably different. It was otherworldly. He came down to Capernaum because even though Nazareth is just a bit, um, Capernaum is a bit north and east of Nazareth, Capernaum is about 600 feet below sea level, so that's why the text says he went down there. And he was obviously invited to speak in the synagogue where he had set up his residence. So he goes down there. Luke calls it a city of Galilee because the Gentile audience, the wider audience of the world who would be reading this gospel wouldn't know the area. So this is in the Galilean region, the reader would know. And having been invited, notice Luke says that the message that he spoke was with authority. It was noticeable immediately. In fact, Matthew's gospel will indicate that when he spoke, he had authority, not as their scribes. So what does that mean? Well, he was somehow obviously way beyond the scholars. And so here's the demonstration of his authority over knowledge. If there are lies in the human mind and lies in the human heart, and there are, if we are born liars and unbelievers, if our corruption is systemic, And we're utterly blind to the truth, so much so that it fills our hearts with lofty ideologies that we raise up against the knowledge of God, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 10. If that's the case, and then those corruptions are further twisted and knotted by Satan, the father of lies who comes along with his hierarchy of demons and false teachers and his subtle deviations and deceitful schemes, and all of that's global, if that's the obstacle, and they don't rest, they're in motion night and day, crafting the next hellish lie to be perpetrated on sinners. If that's the case, Jesus has to be able to confound that with the way he teaches And so the truth message of Jesus has to be able to surpass and overpower Satan's fortress of falsehoods and clear things up immediately in people's minds. He has to have that power, not only in the manner in which he speaks, but the message and content of what he says. You say, well, how did people immediately recognize that it was different? Well, first of all, it was so piercingly clear. It was irrefutably clear. You couldn't refute the piercing clarity of it. Now remember, he's God, so he's filled with the power of the Spirit. He had a sinless heart, and he had an undefiled intellect. 
And so every time he taught, think about it. This is really amazing to imagine. Every word he chose was optimum for the exact moment to hit every mind in the room perfectly. Not that they would believe it, but it was clear. That's an amazing reality. Every sentence was so suitably constructed as to convince and to convict for the highest effect intended by the speaker. I wish I had that. I mean, this is amazing. Every inflection of his voice was perfectly expressed to achieve the divine end. And every thesis, every argument, so soundly presented, so wonderfully ordered, that it astonished young and old, genius and fool, all cultures. What he said and how he said it was so noticeably flawless that it was captivating and impenetrable. You couldn't find a gap in his logic. There was no poorly worded argument, no weak illustration or off-the-cuff misspeaking, no way to use his own principles against him because you found an inconsistency. It just didn't happen when he spoke. He was utterly captivating when he spoke, unless your heart was hardening. Merely human teachers, like me, we, uh, we don't have that. We don't have that. We have to study and have to work hard at this. And we have to learn the skill of teaching. And then we're legitimately criticized sometimes for the lack of clarity. People legitimately criticize us because, you know, you weren't clear. And, 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 and you weren't. And your illustration didn't really fit or it weakened the point. Or, or you misinterpret a passage because you didn't take enough time in it. And so we go to study and we go to testing. And we have guys that are brilliant in the scholarly world like Dr. Zemeck. And they test us in school. And you have to be graded, which is degrading. (laughs) And we have mentors who come and mentor us, and we have to learn through our failures, and we have to hone our speaking skills and develop expertise and strain to make articulate, clear arguments. Listen, beloved, we even have to earn educational degrees to prove we've mastered a subject. This is why it is so foolish and useless to try to cleverly manipulate people into receiving the truth by some speaking ability. That's silly. You want to be clear, that's all. To get fanciful with your glib ideas and and off-the-cuff personality doesn't change a heart. It cannot. You had the perfect preacher on the earth, perfect authority, absolute authority over all knowledge and truth, saying everything exactly the way he wanted to say it, and yet he must open the heart. He even closed some hearts. One day, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show such great signs and speak and boast of such great things that they will deceive, if it were possible, even the elect, Matthew 24 says. (laughs) That's how cunning the lies are. It has to be supernatural. So when you heard Jesus, you knew he taught as one who was the source of the sermon. He wasn't like a a mediator. He wasn't uh, the the second. Obviously, when he spoke, everyone came to the same conclusion. This man speaks in a way that is totally unlike any of the other kind of learned prophets or teachers we've ever heard. Furthermore, not only was it clear, but it was imposing in its content. Notice, the message was with authority. What did that mean? The message was truth. You couldn't argue with it. It was unassailable. 
The scholars couldn't argue with it. And it hit your heart like a flaming torch. You were under conviction. This teaching did things to you. It cornered you with its piercing conviction. It dismantled all of your straw men. It it dealt with all of your questions. It unmasked all of your excuses. And it offered you hope. The kind of hope that fell on your ears like you'd never heard it before. Listen, if the disciples lacked courage and boldness to follow Jesus when they were told to take the gospel to the world, they would find it very strengthening to read back through Luke's account and know and remember that this happened. They were weak, just like us, even later. But then the Spirit entered them, just like we have the Spirit today. And when you know the truth and you speak the truth, God works. You want to know how he displayed it? He displayed it not just in this way that people responded to his teaching, but notice also the authority over all evil that he demonstrated. The authority over all evil that was demonstrated in this narrative. Verse 33, in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. I just can't get past that right there. I mean, beloved, this is a condition not of those that were physically diagnosed as insane. It is not spoken of in the Bible as a condition that was organically diagnosed or medical in nature. It was always and ever viewed as an abnormal state of mind brought on by a spiritual or supernatural entity outside of the person for which religious counsel had the greatest effect. Not medicine. I just can't get past the misery this must have been. Somebody opened their life up to sin. Somebody walked into sinful living. Someone opened their heart and mind up to the worst kinds of vulnerabilities. And there they were in this kind of bondage. And Jesus is the one person, the one person whose presence, listen, the forces of evil must acknowledge. The forces of evil don't have to show themselves or manifest themselves to any, any earthly human being. In fact, that wouldn't be their most effective tactic. To openly manifest themselves as evil is not their most effective tactic. People run around saying, oh, demons here, demons there, demons over here. Listen, there's enough deception in that. They come as an angel of light. The last thing they want to do is be forced out in the open to say what they don't want to say, even though they're defiant against Christ. When he's on the earth, he's the one person that they are forced to acknowledge. You remember that account in Acts 19 when the seven sons of... Siva were running around trying to exercise demons out of possessed people. You remember what the demon said in Acts 19, verse 15? I recognize Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you guys? And just completely dismantled them and tortured them and beat them to a pulp. No human being can demand that a demon manifest themselves. No human being in his own power can smoke out the demonic forces over what they want to do. They don't, they don't like their real identity exposed. There's no deception in it. 
But when Jesus is on the earth, demons were often forced out in the open in remarkable ways. And notice a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. What do you mean in the synagogue? This isn't during the service that we know of. He might have been sitting there. But the, the indication here by the language is that he, he burst into the sacred service. He knows Jesus is there. The demons have an agenda. And yet they are like a vortex brought to the authority of Christ. It's interesting too that Luke is a physician and he loves accounts of healing and he will string a bunch of accounts of healing all together. And it's amazing because he, he says that this happened quite often as Jesus was going around. He was healing people. It, it happens again and again. Verse 40, notice of this chapter. While the sun was setting, all those who had any were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, you're the son of God. And then he would do the same thing. Listen, the Luke is a doctor. He sees the miserable condition. He's utterly incapable of affecting it. Demon possession would have been very frustrating to people like Luke, the village doctor, because how it seemed to send every normal function of the human mind and body into absolute misery and chaos. There's no use denying the reality of the affliction here. It was carefully distinguished, as I said, from every other form of disease common in the day. Furthermore, Jesus spoke directly to the evil entity behind the affliction. And the possessed person always was used, their vocal cords were used by the evil entity to speak back. And they said things they could never have come up with on their own. So clearly you can't deny what's going on here. And notice Jesus' ministry forced an impulsive exposure. Verse 33. And he cried out with a loud voice. So here you have the demon bursting into the sacred service and he is yelling. This is language that describes a a constant screaming and yelling. The sovereign authority of Jesus is already somehow compelling the, the unclean, vile spirit to rush into this worship service and in front of all the Jews where no demon would go regularly, certainly not manifest himself, Certainly be a part of their unbelief and deception, but not openly go. He comes into this and he starts screaming at Jesus. And notice in the translation it says that he said, Ha! It's interesting how it's translated there. It's a, it's in some of your translations, let us alone. It's a, um, in the Greek construction, it's, it's a particle and hard to translate, but basically it is antagonism. And it's like he's pointing at Jesus saying, there you are. Ah, there you are. You're the one. In other words, there isn't anybody else in this room that's even noticed. There you are. And notice the admission. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? So the next thing he yells is this cultural idiom. What? It would be like this if we translated it literally. What to you and to me? In other words, what business of any significant kind is there between us? You're out of your place. You've wandered beyond a barrier, Jesus. That's the 
That's the rage that's going on here. There you are. What are you doing in my realm? Wow. That's the, that's the terminology going on. It carried the attitude of what right do you have to be in our realm and approaching me? So that's why your translation, some of them say, let me alone, let us alone. It, it, it has the idea of go away and leave me alone. Jesus of Nazareth, by the way, is not a casual term. Uh, this is what the demon said because he's setting up a connection between the man Jesus from the town of Nazareth to the next statement, which is you are the Holy One of God. Why is he trying to do that? Because Satan is wanting to disrupt Jesus' plan to preach the truth, strengthen the disciples, go to Jerusalem at just the proper time, fulfill the prophecies by dying for sinners and accomplishing what the Father called him to accomplish. Satan would like to disrupt that by an early homicide. So the sooner he can, and his demons can identify Jesus and stir up a mob riot, that's what he wants to do. But Jesus is on a perfectly chosen pace. It was not yet time to fulfill his mission yet and experience the full fury of Israel and Rome to end his life. That time had not yet come. The forces of evil were always defiant against the divine plan. These demons wanted to increase the hostility as quickly as they could and and turn God's purposes on their head as if they could accomplish that. You can imagine the disciples, the few that were there already called, sitting there, you know, just stunned. And notice the opposition. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Notice the us there. This demon is violently enraged and he makes a bitter accusation. It doesn't mean there are multiple demons in the man. There might have been, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is he's making a bitter accusation as if Jesus had unlawfully breached some cosmic boundary um, and come into the world of demonic activity to ruin their enterprise that they believe was legitimate. In other words, you've unlawfully crossed over into our legitimate enterprise because we own the earth. You have no business doing that. Wow. That is remarkable. They all know their end will eventually come. Matthew 8, 29, the two demons that... Demon-possessed men, the hills of Gadarene, the caves that came running out, and they were thrown, or they threw those two men down at the feet of Jesus, and they said, have you come to torment us before the time? What are you doing here? This isn't right. You're out of line. It's not time yet. You violated our domain, and you need to get out. That's what's happening here. And so he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is very ironic. The authority of the mere presence of Jesus in the room fuels the demon's rage. And though he intends to defy, listen, the perfect timing of God's plan, he's outed in public. His intention is to incite a a premature riot with this mob, but he ends up affirming... The very sovereign authority which controls the timing. You're the Holy One of God. That's always the way it is with demonic forces. The forces of evil are really stupid. 
And it shows here. Jesus' ministry forced an impulsive exposure and then notice very quickly His supremacy forced an immediate ejection. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked Him. And He said, Be quiet and come out of Him. And when... This is, this is very, very direct use of the language to show sort of the, uh, the, the on-the-heels-of kind of moment. Jesus said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. It wasn't as though the demon did a few last jabs he, in order to do what he was told to do. came out of the man and uh, left him there. There was no harm came to him. Notice verse 41. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Jesus rebukes evil and it flees. What is being demonstrated here? Jesus has the power to rebuke evil into absolute submission. You remember Satan had to request of the Father of God before his throne to have anything to do with Job, to do anything to Job? Job 1 and 2? Yes. Do you remember that Jesus said to his beloved disciple Peter, Satan has come and requested to sift you like wheat? He had to come and he has to request. He's in subjection. And when Jesus rebukes this evil spirit, it has to go into absolute submission. And notice he restrained the evil. Be quiet. And notice verse 41, he wasn't allowing them to speak. Why? I don't want you to do what you defiantly want to do. You want to incite mob riots for a premature death so that the plan of the Father doesn't go through. But you be quiet and you, don't, you can't say anything. I mean, he just puts a moratorium on their speech. He has the power to restrain evil and the power to overrule its presence for his greater purposes. The most amazing thing is that with a word of absolute authority, he removed the evil. I find it amazing that it says at the end of verse 35, he came out of him without doing him any harm. This must be because Luke, Luke either was told specifically the story Got it firsthand from the Lord. And wow. Absolutely amazing. Here is a physician giving testimony that the evil and dominion and bondage was gone. Verse 36 Amazement came upon them all. They began talking with one another, saying, What is this? Message. What is this word? Because with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out. They knew this is unnerving. This is unsettling. Something is very different here. We've done this for years. We've tried incantations and, and candles and, and all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. And the priests and we've, we've tried everything. Doctors and chanting and... We can't get anywhere with these unclean spirits. And with one word, 
They just go. He commands them and they come out. What would that have done for the disciples? Oh. You see what it takes to change a heart? You see what it takes to heal a life? What, what must that man's life have been like sitting there, completely free from the bondage, looking at Jesus and saying, How? What? Where? Please stay with me. You have freed me. That's what Jesus was demonstrating. It's exactly what Hebrews says. Don't turn there. Let me just read it. Here's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Therefore, since the children, that is the offspring of God, share in flesh and blood, in other words, we're human, and he himself likewise also partook of our flesh and blood, came to earth as a man, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Listen, you, you resist, you come into the world resisting the truth and it produces condemnation and you ultimately have this, this cloud of fear that is going to come back and haunt you. And when you die, if you die in your sin, you face God alone as a slave to your sin. And the power of death has you in its grip. Not just physical death, but spiritual death forever. But Jesus died to render that earthly, temporary power of Satan, though, though completely corrupting, Jesus rendered it by his death and resurrection powerless. So when the disciples saw Jesus rise from the dead, and then later they took on the gospel mission of spreading the gospel, they would have thought back, hey, why are we worried that bondage is going to hold the hearts of all those people we share with? God must open the heart. Can he do it? Yes. Does he have authority to speak to a dead heart and bring it to life? Yes. Of course. You might read a narrative like that and think, boy, I wish I could have been there to see that spirit weasel spoken to you like that. Listen, you don't need to be in a synagogue and see a demon-possessed man healed of his bondage. If you're in Christ here today, God spoke to your heart and the prison bars and chains of your bondage and your heart fell off in a moment. Don't you remember that? Don't you remember that? That's why I love the song, And Can It Be? Don't you remember that verse? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's dark night. But thine eye diffused, that is to say, spread out a quickening ray. And I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. And I rose and went forth and followed thee. Right? He has the power. He has the authority. Don't worry about that. It happened to you. You had to open your heart. He can open other people's hearts. You just speak the truth. Bow with me for a moment. Let's go before the Lord's table.
Take a moment and just confess your sin before the Lord. Whatever it might be that keeps you back from an intimate, sweet fellowship with Him. Whatever you're carrying today as a burden. This is a time to partake of the Lord's table with a pure and clean heart. Take a moment and confess bitternesses against others and unkindnesses and unforgivenesses, things that reflect the old life. And thank God that He opened your heart, loosed the chains from your mind, took the scales from your eyes. What a sweet and precious gift. And He longs to bear more fruit through your life, so thank Him for that.